21, we're going to think about the inevitable consequences if we decide not to use that principle that's in 15 and 16. There are some consequences that are going to flow from that. So that's the way we're going to to uh, move tonight. If you'd like it simple, it's confusion, clarity, and consequences. You say, well, that's the same message you preach every Sunday. So there it is, confusion, clarity, and consequences. So there we go. Uh, first of all, in verses 11 through 14, let's look at situational confusion. We have a, we have a confusing situation here. Uh, it says Peter, now Cephas is just another word for Peter. So this is the apostle Peter. It says, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul had to oppose him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, this is a pretty interesting situation, isn't it? You really have two titans here. You've got two titans of the faith. You've got the apostle Peter, and you've got the apostle Paul. And there's some situation that happened in Antioch that has caused them to come into conflict. There's got to be, Paul says, I had to oppose Peter. And so you've got two authorities in the church that apparently... There is some, there's, there's a lack of clarity. There's some confusion between them about something that's, that's going on. Now, what is it? Well, if we read a little farther, we'll find out. Peter had come to Antioch on a visit to see how the church was doing. And this has happened after the Jerusalem council. You will remember from reading your book of Acts that when Paul and uh, uh, Barnabas had come back from evangelizing the Galatians, they'd come back from their first missionary journey, they had gone back to the church at Antioch, which was their sending church, and that certain men had come from Jerusalem and had preached to the church at Antioch, your version of Christianity is not adequate. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Exactly the same message that the Galatians were being preached to several years later. And when these men had come to Antioch uh, preaching that message, Paul and Barnabas immediately reacted against that. They said, no, that's not true. We have been going all over the world teaching people the true gospel. And what you have come to us with is not the authentic gospel. Salvation is by grace through faith. People don't have to keep a law. You don't have to add any actions. You don't have to add any uh, rituals to the gospel in order to be saved. Salvation is by grace through faith. And there was a dispute in the church at Antioch between about who was right. Is it these ones who have come up from Jerusalem or is it Paul and Barnabas? Well, they said, well, there's an easy way to, to, to solve this. We're going to go down to Jerusalem and we're going to ask the apostles. We're going to get with the earliest Christians and we're going to find out what they believed and how they understood this. By the way, that's always the smartest thing. Did you know that? It's always the smartest thing to go back to the earliest believers and see how they understood our Bibles. Because they're closest to the source. And if you want to know what the truth is, you want to get pure water, go to the source, right? And so this is, this is what they're saying. They're, they're saying, somebody knows the answer to this question. We're in confusion up here in Antioch. Let's get close to the source. Let's go back to where the apostles are and we'll consult with them and we'll get an authoritative answer on this matter. That's a pretty smart thing to do, isn't it? Go back to the source if you want to know how to understand your Bible. You know what you'll find if you go back to the source? You're going to find that the, the Scripture that we have before us and that our understanding of the Scripture is, is incredibly close 
to the, incredibly is a bad word because that means unbelievable. It is credibly close to what was taught by the earliest apostles. This really is the apostolic doctrine. You know why? Because we go back to the source and we say, how did they understand it? And however they understood it is the, is the proper way to understand it. And so that's what they did. They said, let's go to Jerusalem and let's do this. So they went to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem council, they, they got the apostles, they got the leaders of the church. James, who's the pastor of the church, is in there. Peter is in there. They debated this thing. One side said this, the other side said that. And finally, the Holy Spirit spoke and said, now I'm going to tell you what. You don't have to add anything to the gospel. And so our answer to these Gentile believers everywhere in the world is, you don't have to add anything to the gospel. It's grace through faith. It's, it is grace through faith alone is the only thing. And then they had written a letter. And the letter that they wrote said, now, we're just going to put a few things on you Gentiles. You don't have to keep the law. You don't have to be circumcised. That's not, that's not the authentic gospel. We in Jerusalem are going to keep doing those things. We're going to keep doing that. And there's a reason why, and we'll get to that in a moment. But we're not going to require you to do that. We are going to ask you to do just a few things said, we don't want you to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. We don't want you to be involved in sexual immorality. Uh, we, uh, you know, we want you to do some things that will help you to be able to share Christ with your Jewish neighbors. Now, they actually made that decision. They said, you don't have to, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, but you do need to live in a way that leaves an opening for the gospel among other people who haven't yet come to know the Lord. And we want to say something about that. We need to say about that, that they made a cultural accommodation. They said, in our culture, living here in Jerusalem, surrounded by Jewish people who, are, who think the law is everything, we, our form of Christianity is going to be a form of Christianity that looks an awful lot like their form of Judaism. We're still going to the temple we go up for the, for the sacrifices in the afternoon and for the prayers. We're going to continue to do that. We're going to be good Jews. And there's a good motive behind why we're going to do that. The motive was good. They said the reason we're going to do that is so that we can keep the door open for the gospel with these people who haven't yet believed. We want to be able to tell them about Jesus without offending them. And unless we're keeping the law, we're not going to be able to bear witness to these people. They're just going to write us off and say, you guys are just, are just apostate Jews. You don't even keep the law. So the motive for what they were doing was good. And these instructions that they wrote to the Gentile churches out in Gentile world were things that were given so that the Gentiles would be able to bear witness to their Jewish neighbors. Uh, and so th there was a good motive for what they did. But the motive may be good, but what they unintentionally did was they established a two-tier system of Christianity. The moment you make an accommodation to the culture, you blur the lines so that it no longer is clear what Christianity really is. And that's the problem that we've got here in Antioch. Peter comes to Antioch, 
And when he comes to Antioch, he's going to the potlucks at the church. Did you, what a church. I mean, they had a potluck every Sunday night. It's almost like Bible fellowship, right? I mean, you know, we're the church that eats. <laughs> Maybe not anymore. I don't think we can do that anymore. But, but, you know, so Peter's at the potluck, man. And he's having a great time. These, these are mostly Jewish people. The Gentile guys are, 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 are mostly Gentile people. There's some Jewish people, but they're, they're at the potluck. You know, everybody's saying, hand me another piece of that ham. I mean, this is great. And so there, Peter is just fitting in with it. And he just, he is in that culture and he's doing it. And then some people come from the church at Jerusalem. And it says they came from James. What does it say? For certain men came from James. James is the pastor of the church at, of the church at Jerusalem. And he, Peter's eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, there, that's a significant verse because it tells us that there are now two parties in the church at Jerusalem. There are the grace party and there's the circumcision party. There's a party inside that church. Now you've got a real problem because the church at Jerusalem has got a division in it. And when, this, when people from that party come to, to Antioch, Peter, who has been enjoying those potlucks, suddenly has to go full kosher. Why does he do that? Peter goes full kosher and Paul goes full ballistic. Right? Because Peter, suddenly, Peter is in this awkward, confused situation. There is, there is this situational confusion about where do I fit? Do I fit with these Gentile brothers that I've been eating with for the last several weeks? Or do I, or, or do I fit with the Jewish party from Jerusalem that's going to say, hey, wait a minute. You're not, you're not being a good Jew by doing this. Don't you know we've got this two-tiered system? So suddenly what happens is when we make a cultural accommodation, we immediately cause situational confusion. Who's right about this? And Paul says, you're not thinking right about this. You're not thinking right about this at all. You're confused because you have no doctrinal clarity. Paul is going to bring them back to, to uh, the central watershed point that allows us to be able to say, hey, wait a minute, this is good and this is not. The doctrinal point in these verses is that whenever Christianity compromises, makes compromises to the culture around it, it risks losing its distinction from the culture around it. And nothing good ultimately results from Christianity surrendering its distinctiveness. Nothing good ever results from Christianity surrendering our distinctiveness. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. He said, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its taste, how's it going to be salty again? He said, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Feet. He said, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a light, a lamp, and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In that same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. 
well-meaning efforts to contextualize Christianity to the culture around it may have some value. Let's not say that there's no value to this. But there's a, there's a danger that has to be guarded against. We may want to contextualize ourselves to a certain extent for the sake of the gospel. But we better be careful. Because one of the sl- things you can do is slide down a very slippery slope where you lose your distinctiveness and Christianity is no longer Christianity. So what Jesus is saying and what Paul was saying stood, what they stood for was the necessity to preserve Christianity's distinction from the world around us. You know, in our generation, as in all previous generations, there exists a strong temptation to accommodate Christianity to the culture around us. Uh, People ask questions like this. Why must you preach so much on sin? Can't you bring a more positive message? Why are you so focused on teaching doctrine? Don't you realize that people today want something more practical than that? Why do you insist on bringing up the subject of sexual morality so often? And by the way, wouldn't it be a good idea to tone down your teaching on wives submitting to their husbands? Dear ones, it still happens every day. It still happens every day. There's pressure every day to accommodate the truth of Christianity to the culture around us. Supposedly in the name of making ourselves more uh, uh, accessible to the culture. More acceptable to the culture. But I wonder if you've noticed what I've noticed. What I've noticed is that when we chase that and when we give in to that, we actually become less effective at reaching our culture we actually become less effective as evangelists. We actually become less effective at bearing witness to what Christ has done for us. The list is nearly endless, and it's always the, always the rationale for doing these things is supposedly to make the gospel more palatable to, the, to a culture in crisis. But what I fear happens is simply this that it probably explains much about our failure of personal evangelism. Almost everyone who believes in biblical Christian doctrine agrees that believers have an obligation to share our faith with others. And yet year after year, surveys come back that tell us that the average evangelical Christian does not share his or her faith with another person even one time in the course of a year. And I can't help but think that some of it is because we think we're going to be offensive and that it would be better for us just to be quiet than it would be to be distinctive. I wonder if that's what's going on. Granted, there are moments when we need to make cultural accommodations for the sake of the gospel. But this must never come at the cost of losing our distinctive message to a dying culture. We just had our book club. I had an I wonder moment in the book club. We are going through some tremendous times on planet Earth, are we not? We've got a pandemic. We've got uh, racial tension. We've got rioting. We've got exceptionally poor leadership. I wonder if this is not God's way of disciplining His church because we're all about us and not about him anymore. It's an I wonder. But it's an I wonder that's worth thinking about, isn't it? 
It's an I wonder that's worth thinking about. Did you ever think about the fact that God may not be angry at the American culture? It may be that he's angry at the American church because we are not bearing witness, because we have accommodated until we've lost our distinctiveness, until we just fit in with everybody else, go with the flow. We're just as angry as anybody else in our society, you know. I wonder what God is up to, don't you? It's a question worth asking. Verses 15 and 16, this is, this is the solution. This is doctrinal clarity. Verses 15 and 16, Paul says, now we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now when he says Gentile sinners, he's not saying anything prejudicial. Uh, that's just the way Jews referred to Gentiles. So he, he's talking to Peter in his head here at this point. And he says, now, Peter, we're Jews. We're not Gentile sinners. We're Jews. But he says, there's something distinctive about us in our Jewishness that's different from others. He says, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. He said, we know this. This is a certainty with us. We've come to a settled conclusion that a person is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in Christ. And so we also have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. He says, now, Peter, don't forget who we are. We are people, we are Jews, but we have put our faith in Jesus. And we do not believe that there's justification in the law. And for us to imply that there's justification by keeping the law is a complete missignal. Peter, what are we thinking about here? We know that by the works of the law, nobody's going to be justified. Paul boldly confronts this issue when Peter comes to Antioch, and he boldly confronts it again when it raises its head with his Galatian believers. Paul's rebuke of the Jerusalem teachers that came to Galatia peddling their wares is stunning indeed. He was not afraid to say two things about them. As we search our book of Galatians, Looking at what he says, he makes it very plain that these men who came were teaching a false gospel and that they were, in fact, false believers. As we read Galatians, Paul is very clear about this. And we say to ourselves, now, how can Paul be that dogmatic about this? Has Paul not read the Sermon on the Mount? Doesn't he know that Jesus said in, in Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged? Paul! Paul, you're judging. You don't have a right to say that about these guys, Paul. You don't have a right to say about these Jerusalem, you know, apostles, whatever they are, prophets who've come up from Jerusalem. You don't have a right to say that that's a false doctrine, and you don't have a right to say that those are false believers. And Paul says, yes, I do. Because the watershed is what we know and what we believe about who Jesus is. Anybody who comes to us telling us that Christ is not enough is not sent by God the Father. We have a right to say that. Because some people think we don't, and that's because they haven't read all of their Bible. Because we also find that our, the same Bible that tells us, judge not that you be not judged, says to us, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So what it's talking about is making a judgment that comes from the Scripture. 
we can with boldness say what the Scripture says always in these kind of situations. We can always say what the Scripture says and know that we're on good grounds. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul has this holy boldness to confront these false teachers to say nothing of the apostle Peter because he knew with absolute certainty the truth of the gospel. You couldn't fool Paul. He'd read his Bible. Paul knew what it meant. Paul had received the gospel from Jesus himself. Paul understood what the truth was and he stood on the truth. Standing on the truth revealed by God in His Word, believers can boldly defend the body of Christ from error because in such cases, we as believers are not judging those in error. Rather, it's God Himself through His Word that's rebuking those who are in falsehood. Paul was bold in his assertion because he was certain of his doctrine. The point here is that doctrine is the watershed that defines with certainty what's true and who's genuine in the professing body of Christ. Do you ever hear of fool's gold? You know what fool's gold is? Fool's gold is a common nickname for pyrite. Pyrite received that nickname because it's worth virtually nothing, but it appears to, it fools people into believing that it's gold. Now with a little practice, there are many easy tests that anyone can use to quickly tell the difference between pyrite and gold. So how do you tell if you got fool's gold or if you got real gold? Well, you have to check for its specific gravity. Of course, everyone knows how to do this, right? Listen, I read the explanation and I can't give it back to you, but, but what I did get was there's a way. And so you check for the specific gravity and real gold has a specific gravity of 19.3 and the specific gravity of pyrite is 5. And so all you have to do is do this little scientific test that checks for the specific gravity, and you can say with absolute certainty, that's gold and that's not. You see, there's a watershed. There's a test. There is a way to be able to tell. So you have to have specific gravity. And in just the same way, Bible doctrine is the specific gravity that brings certain judgment to bear on the truth claims that we hear and on those who are making them. But if you don't know what your Bible says about the matter, how are you going to be able to do that? What if you don't know what the Bible says about, about the specific thing you're being taught? Well, in that case, you're completely at the mercy of whoever's teaching you, aren't you? I once saw a terrible Clint Eastwood movie. <laughs> this is a terrible admission. I saw a terrible Clint Eastwood movie where he shot a man who didn't have a gun. And a bystander looked at him and said, you just shot an unarmed man. And Eastwood said, well, he should have armed himself. <laughs> you don't want to be schnookered. You better arm yourself, right? You don't want to be taken in by, by what's false. You better know what's true. We need to give ourselves to the study of Bible doctrine so that when people come down the pike teaching us whatever they want to teach us about blood moons, or buzzard eggs, or, you know, you, you, that's, I'm, I'm into prophecy now, right? Some of the silly nonsense stuff that people preach and schnooker people, or prosperity gospel, or you, you name it, you know. You don't want to be taken in. There's only one way to be kept from taking in. What do you do? You got to know what your Bible says. You have to study. 
We're given a great example of this in Acts 17. It talks about the Bereans. The Bereans, it says, were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. False doctrines making tremendous headway in the body of Christ today for two reasons. First of all, because many churches have abandoned systematic teaching of doctrine in favor of supposedly more practical messages. And secondly, it's making headway because many believers in our days do not understand that you can hear God for yourself through prayerful, spirit-empowered meditation on God's Word. And let me encourage you to become Bereans. Learn to search the Scriptures daily to see if the things you're being told are really so. You should go home every time you come on a Sunday night. You ought to go home and open your Bible and see whether I've told you the truth or not. Hold me to account. Hold your preachers to account. Don't take our word for it. Go find out for yourself. The Bible will tell you. The Bible will tell you. What happens when God's people aren't willing to do this? Well, Paul talks about the consequences in verses 17 through 21. There are inevitable consequences that come from ignoring this. And he says to them, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. He says, now, I want you to think about what this doctrine that you've received amounts to in my case. That's what Paul is saying to them. He's saying, you've received this doctrine that says, unless you're circumcised and keep the law, you can't be saved. Paul says, now, I want you to think about this. He says, how does that affect me? Because I'm not keeping the law. Paul said, I'm not doing that. I'm eating at the potluck. So what that means is, if in my endeavor to be justified in Christ by faith, I'm found to be a sinner because I'm not practicing this business of circumcision and law keeping, then that inevitably means that I am not saved, says the Apostle Paul. And worse than that, it means that Christ, who is my only confidence and hope, is actually become an, he's aiding and abetting a sinner. Paul says, do you think that's really what's going on? That's the logical end of the doctrine that they've been taught. He says, no, that's not what's going on. Certainly not. He says, if I now, having, having preached to you grace alone, through faith alone, if I now turn around and start keeping the law and start rebuilding the system that I tore down, all I'm doing is proving that I'm a sinner. And he said, the consequence of that is that you can't tell whether I'm true or not unless you accept these doctrines. He says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. But now listen, he says, it's not that at all. It's not through law. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. I died with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. My life is now wrapped up with him. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul's ultimate point to the Galatians is, he said, if 
These false teachers who have come to you are right. Then there is no salvation in the gospel you've received. And the whole thing is a myth. What he says to them is, it's Christ alone and nothing else. Christ alone and nothing else. The point he's making is that no accommodation can be possible. It's either the gospel of grace or nothing. I've told the story before, but it fits so well here, I'm going to repeat myself and hope that you have very bad memories. There was a very wealthy man who loved his son very much, but he lost his son as a casualty in the Vietnam War. The father made a painting of his son from memory. Dad was obviously no artist, and the painting just simply wasn't very good. But the father was very wealthy, and after he passed away, the announcement went out that the old man's estate would be auctioned off since he had no heir. Because the man was wealthy, there was a lot of anticipation about the auction. Some good deals were to be had for sure, it was thought. And so when the day for the sale came, the first item offered was the old man's portrait of his son. And there wasn't much interest. It went for a very low price, and everybody was glad when it was disposed of and out of the way so that the real sale could begin. Imagine their surprise when the auctioneer cried out, this concludes the sale. And they say, wait a minute. What about all these other things? What about all the other stuff that's here? Oh, said the auctioneer, you must not have understood the terms. The old man was very specific. Whoever takes the sun gets it all. Whoever takes the sun gets it all. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying there isn't anything else you need to add to the gospel. You don't need to put politics on the gospel. You don't need to put uh, 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 prosperity into the gospel. You don't need to put uh, an alternative uh, morality into the gospel. You don't have to add ritual to the gospel. The moment you try to add any of those things to the gospel, the auction is over and you missed your chance. Whoever takes the sun gets it all. That's the point. And the watershed point, the, 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 the way we make our judgment on that is by understanding with clarity what our Bibles tell us is the truth. If, you, if we do not do this, we're always going to be schnookered by a lie. Unless we learn to love the truth, we're always going to be taken captive by lies. The Galatians fell into the trap of false teachers because they lacked doctrinal clarity. Dear ones, don't fall into the same trap. The continental divide between truth and falsehood in spiritual matters is doctrinal clarity. If we don't want to be fooled, we have to be certain that we know the truth. May God help each one of us to become good Bereans, searching the Scriptures daily to see if what we are being taught is so. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us clarity in the Scriptures. And we understand that we have to have, we must have your help to understand. We must have the help of those who've gone before us, who understood with clarity. We must be people who search our Bibles if we don't want to be schnookered. And we don't want to be schnookered. We want to be good Bereans. We want to know. We honestly do. So we pray that you'll help us. We pray that you'll help us to understand with clarity the wonders of your word. 
Lord Jesus, I'm reminded that our children's ministry uses a curriculum they call super book. And it couldn't be more true. The Bible that we have open in front of us is a super book. It tells us what the truth is with absolute certainty. Help us to avail ourselves of this wonderful revelation and the help of the Spirit that you've given us. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in Christ alone, the first verse and the last verse. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. No guilt in life, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no seam of man can ever plug me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Amen. Let's pray. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for coming. Go out there and stay safe.